0: Pick that up for about a million dollars. We'll end up putting about 700,000 into it. And we have them pre sold at 2.675.
1: I'm ready to talk to you one on one about working together. If you think back, many of the successful multifamily investors I've interviewed here on this show, their first step into this space was becoming a passive equity partner. One of the many benefits is the opportunity to build a track record that allows you to have more credibility with sellers brokers, and your own passive investors. My company has about 700 doors that we're actively working on right now. And when these go to contract, we bring these opportunities to the accredited investors that are on our list. If you've already been thinking about getting a portfolio of multifamily doors, then now is a great opportunity for you to be involved with Blue Spruce Holdings as a passive equity partner. One of the unique things that my team does for our equity partners is sending out invites when we tour a new property. Which allows them to see what we look for, along with getting to know the building and the neighborhood and even meeting some of the residents. So if you're ready to take the next step and set up a one-on-one call with me, then please find my calendar link in today's show notes. And let's talk. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams, and today we're in for a treat. We actually have Justin Saverio. I hope I said it right, Justin, and he's from Boston. And actually, he's doing multifamily development and condo conversions. Very interesting way to look at real estate. You take the apartment building, and then you actually convert each of the units to add a ton of value. So that's one of the things that he's doing. He also is a wholesaler for multifamily and single family. He's been involved in the real estate industry for eight years and currently owns nine doors. That's a sixplex and a two-family and a condo. And if nobody knows, in Boston, they call two fam- they call duplexes two families. So welcome to the show, Justin. How are you today?
0: I'm doing excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Adam.
1: Thanks for being on. And I am very interested in kind of diving into your business and being able to understand and share with the listeners how you do a condo conversion. So. With that said, uh, tell us a little bit about your background.
0: Um, so my background, I'm an accountant by trade. I um, always thought kind of uh, building and construction was always interesting. I grew up, my father was a general contractor, so I always loved what he did, but didn't really want to get my hands that dirty. Um, come the, the years of uh, flipping houses and all that and saw what they were doing on TV and was like, wow, that's, that's awesome. I can get my, take my accounting and numbers background. Join it with what my father's experience is and uh, try this out and see, see how it works.
1: That's, that's really cool. So did you used to work with your dad?
0: Uh, in the summers, basically, okay. Uh, okay. through school. Um, but I always, always found it fascinating building homes. always found that it was very artistic of him and what he did and really loved that aspect. Um, so new, so yeah.
1: his niche was uh, building the homes?
0: Yes, building okay. big renovations, things like that, yeah.
1: Awesome. Is he still doing that today? No, he just actually retired. Congrats to him. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Um, So, and you said you didn't really want to get your hands dirty. So, tell us more about your journey into real estate investing.
0: Yeah, when I started out, um, so I knew I didn't want to actually do the work on the houses because one, it would take forever and two, you can't scale a business that way. Um, So, leveraged off my father on managing projects. Uh, started very slowly. Um, so, uh, started basically right in the lower end homes. Uh, so I didn't have to spend so much money. So, because in Boston, you can range housing stock goes anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to millions of dollars mm. and a couple hundred thousand, you're really not getting that much. Uh, so I didn't want to take as much risk. I started out at entry level, spent a couple of years there until I felt really comfortable. Then started moving my way up to the different markets, mid-market, and then got into high end uh, renovations, high end new construction on the single family side until about a year and a half ago when I started to really push into Boston where purchase prices are anywhere from a million dollars and up um, on buying things.
1: So you said one thing that I kind of wanted to bring uh, to light and you you and I might have different opinions on this, so I think it'd be great to talk about it you said that you started small and kind of gradually got into where you felt comfortable going into bigger and bigger projects. The question is, I tell my listeners a lot of times that if you want to do big projects, that that should be your 100% focus and not to take baby steps. Would you, uh, would you argue on the other side, would you say it was more beneficial to start small?
0: I would for myself anyways, I'm very risk adverse. Um, maybe it's my accounting background, but I always take I'm very calculated on what I do, and I don't like to take big risks. So if something happened where I was in the lower end home, you know, uh, the the cost difference isn't as much. So if I make a, a $20,000 error, um, if I went to the right to the higher end homes, that $20,000 error might have been maybe an HVAC unit, unit, where in the larger homes where I'm doing multi-units, that could have really exponentially increased to 100,000 or more. Um, so it, it gave me the opportunity to really learn on a very base level and build my experience in what I was doing until I felt really comfortable to keep on moving on and stack the experience onto each other.
1: Okay, I really like that feedback. And yeah, the accounting background certainly is numbers oriented, uh, definitely not emotional and just getting it all in a row. Your ducks are in a row. I do have one question. If you positioned yourself to partner with somebody who was doing the types of assets that you ended up doing and learned that way, do you think that would be a creative way to still do it safely? Yeah,
0: and, and that's, a, that's an excellent point that you have because that's actually what I did to get into Boston, the Boston market um, because it's, it's very different in Boston to the suburbs. There's a lot of zoning issues and things that you need to know. And players that you need to know. So that's what I mm. did is I leveraged off someone else's experience and got involved in that. Perfect. Um, so that is an absolute great way to kind of segue into exactly what you want to do and uh, work with somebody else that has that experience.
1: Okay. Thank you for sharing. Uh, quick question. So we didn't really cover this when we were doing a pre-interview. Are you a full-time accountant or you just had an accounting background?
0: I was a full-time accountant when I started. So okay. and I was I was doing accounting full time for five years while I was doing, while I was investing on the side.
1: Okay. Uh, so you are saying that, okay, so you've been in, 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 investing for five years in real estate for five years, you were an accountant and an investor for, uh, you're, you're doing everything for eight years, excuse me, but you were an investor and accountant for five, five years. Is that accurate? That and is, when that is when correct. was the overlap? Like when did you start accounting? When did you start being a investor?
0: So I started um, accounting about 15 years ago, and I was specifically in the venture capital um, private equity industry. Um, so I started that 15 years ago, and then in 2010, 2011, that's when I started my real estate investing um, with with my father.
1: Okay, awesome. Yeah. All right, so tell us more about Condo Conversions. How is that done? How do you find the assets? How do you do the zoning? And how do you do firewalls or whatever they're requiring you to do between each of the units?
0: Yeah. um, So with condo conversions, what I'm doing is going into Boston and finding uh, two families, three families, up to six units, and uh, going in purchasing them as is um, and, and trying to get those turned over to condos. The condo process is not all that difficult uh, to get done, but the real value in changing these over to condos is really looking at the zoning and looking at under uh, undervalued or underdeveloped properties. So a lot of the times what I do is I go in and say, look at the different properties and the areas that I focus on and say, all right, this is a single family here, but what, uh, what is it zoned for? Is it zoned for two or three family? If it is, There's a huge value that I can add because in Boston, we're getting anywhere from, depending where you are, $400 to over $1,000 a square foot. Mm. So if we can change those, if I can go in, change that single family, add square footage, um, and if I can add 1,000 square foot on $800 a square foot, that's that's almost a million dollars in value that I'm adding.
1: Okay. Um, So let me interrupt you because I might have had, uh, I must have... Thought of something that you're not doing. So I thought you went into a, a two-family that was already there and just separated it. But mm-hmm. it sounds like you're maybe finding a single-family that's zoned to allow for uh, that second one, and you're building the second one on. Is that correct?
0: Yes, I do. I actually do both. Okay, I do both. Got but the um, so the two-family changing it over to where it's already a two-family changing into condos. Um, you're you can add value in doing that because you're switching them to condos and selling them off. But the real value, what I look for the home run deals Mm. is when we start to add in layer in the zoning plays. Okay. Um, So that's what I try to focus on as much as I possibly can, because I know those are going to be really home run deals. Um, But I still do the, you know, if it's a three unit, converting that over to a a three unit condo.
1: What's the biggest deal you've done in the last 24 months?
0: Um, one that I'm just finishing up now, uh, so one I just picked up a couple weeks ago, but I haven't finished, so I can't tell you it's going to be my biggest deal till it actually goes. But the one that we're just finishing up should be selling off in about two or three weeks. Um, that's a two-family. So it was a two-family townhouse style. Um, it was a, a single structure with townhouses on either side, and um, there was a lot of unused square footage in there. And this was actually an MLS deal that I think I just happened to get lucky that somebody wasn't looking in the right place. Um, but we added a lot of square footage, uh, pick that up for about a million dollars. We'll end up putting about 700,000 into it and we have them pre-sold at 2.675.
1: Perfect. So that's about a million dollar spread, right?
0: Yeah. We have some holding costs in there. Um, but yeah, this one, this will be a nice, uh, nice deal.
1: That's awesome. And how long did you say that it was taking you to actually do this deal?
0: It took about seven months to get through zoning. Boston is crazy slow with zoning. And especially in this sector of uh, Boston, um, they're very stringent on what can be done and what can't be done. Um, And it's just an entirely long process. So about seven months, picked it up, I think, April, May of last year, uh, seven months of zoning, and then maybe six months of construction. Uh, six or seven months of construction.
1: Okay. That's a, that's a great year. I like that a lot. I do have a question on, you said that you the zoning takes seven months. You also said that it's very difficult in Boston to get that zoning taken care of. So my question is on risk. So are you starting the zoning before you actually buy it or are you taking on the risk of if it's going to be able to be zoned and how do you mitigate that?
0: Very good question, and I would say it depends. Um, it depends what area of Boston. Some some areas are not as complex as others, um, but the specific area that I was telling you about, where this property resides, um, they basically have it that says you have to go through zoning, regardless of what you do. If you renovate over a thousand square feet, even if you own the house to live mm-hmm. in as a owner occupied, you have to go through zoning, to get it done. And they're doing, they did that because uh, development skyrocketed a couple years ago and now they're trying to catch up. So they're slowing everybody down. So everybody has to go through zoning. So that's why it's taking so long because everybody's kind of held up and in uh, like a line just get, trying to get through zoning. So going back to your question, um, it's a calculator risk. If, it's a, if I'm looking to, for instance, I'm looking at a property right now where it's a, uh, a two family, and we think we might be able to get 18 units. So we're purchasing that with a contingency um, that we can get so many units. Um, other times I've done it where I'll purchase the property and give them a close on the deal, and then I'll give them additional money uh, for every additional unit that I get.
1: Okay, That's, that sounds great. So if, if it's contingent, does that mean you're under contract for a longer period of time?
0: That's correct. Yes. Okay.
1: Great, thank you for sharing that. And I have a question. So, the main way that you were able to add value to this property was by, as you said, uh, utilizing the square footage. There was unused square footage before. And so, let's talk about what the steps that you took to add the square footage. What did it take to get there?
0: Sure. Um, there were two significant areas of the property that uh, we added square footage. Uh, for instance, the basement was only about six feet high. Yet there was about three feet under the, the deck of the basement until you actually got to the ground. So they built like a deck on t- three feet above the ground. Um, so I saw that that was open space down there. So what we did was just went in, removed the deck, lowered the, lowered the deck. So now you have eight foot ceilings. So now that's usable space. Um, the roof uh, was a pitch. Um, it was a pitched roof. So what I did was went in, changed the pitch roof to a mansard roof, which is very consistent, and um, that's kind of the style in this neighborhood. So it looked much more like the other uh, structures around it. And with a mansard roof, you're really not uh, you're utilizing all that that floor space on that top floor.
1: Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. I love that. So explain to the audience, if if you wouldn't mind, what is a mansard.
0: Uh, a mansard roof is basically a very steep, um, a very, it's almost like a, a hip roof only it's, uh, it's a very steep, um, roof structure and then a flat roof on the top. Perfect. Does that make
1: sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, um, I have a question. Was there any concern when you went to the basement and you added the feet down for water intrusion any type of water getting in uh
0: there wasn't so this it was very dry in the basement we're still actually about a foot up uh above uh, off the ground in one side and three feet on the other side on the other unit uh so we're still well above the uh the the ground level
1: perfect um so if you're going to be buying these houses in boston or these duplex uh two families in (laughs) Boston, and you want to take the same steps that you did to create more square footage and uh, make a million dollars in a year gross. What would be the steps that someone would take first? First, you need to find a deal that nobody else sees?
0: Um, Yeah, I think this deal was more or less um, because there... I think this deal was just that people didn't see um, the additional value that could be done and moving the deck around in the basement level, changing the roof structure. Um, also, it was on the MLS for maybe $1.4 and ended up picking up for a $1 million. Mm. Um, so just understanding what kind of their, um, their needs were with the sellers and all of that um, really helped out. But I would say getting into Boston and to learning something like this, I would very much, uh, like you said, talk to somebody that has experience and leverage off them Mm -hmm. uh, because zoning is a very, very important aspect uh, of doing this to making sure that you don't get uh, caught up and you're not approved for something that you thought you could get done.
1: Perfect. And so you mitigated that risk by tying it up under contract with a condition Uh, that it needed to actually have the zone, the city needed to be able to prove this.
0: This one, we actually, so typically, yes, this one, the only variance that we had to get was a, um, we were too close on a side setback by about three feet. So the worst that we could really foresee uh, happening is that we would have to do like a funky um, inset on the top floor for the roof structure. Um, So we would still be able to get most of the usable space that we needed to on the top floor. Um, But we knew at the end of the day that uh, they weren't going to make us do this because it was going to make the property look really strange. Um, So we felt very comfortable with um, buying it without that contingency because the sellers also didn't want a contingency. They wanted to kind of move on. So I felt that 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 risk benefit was worth it to just buy it without a contingency. Okay. Um, yeah. We went through
1: probably once, you know, that the zoning zoning is going to be working and you see the value add potential I think the next one is making sure you can fund it. So how did you close on this property?
0: Most of my deals that I do is a combination of uh, construction, um, commercial funding, um, and private lenders. Uh, so I've done a lot of commercial lending with the same company for the last seven or eight years. Uh, so, if, uh, so most of it is 75% of the purchase price, 100% of the, the construction. And then I also bridge that with a uh, private lender that okay. uh, provides uh, some funds as well for not only the additional purchase price cost, but the uh, cash flowing.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, and then once you actually close on the deal, how do you r- do all the rehab and manage your contractors?
0: Um, on. Anything that I do in Boston now, I use a project manager. Um, I'm about 30 minutes, 35 minutes north of Boston. That's where my office is. Um, so it's really tough for me to get in and out of the city, especially with traffic. So I rely heavily on uh, project managers uh, to for the day-to-day items. And then I'll go down back and forth once every couple of weeks to check on. And also in, at very specific times during the renovation or the development. Um, that I feel like I need to check in before like the walls go up or the insulation goes in to make sure that I'm really comfortable with how they framed everything out um, and those aspects.
1: Got it, got it. And then once everything's completely done, how do you sell the property in, and for the price that you anticipated?
0: I am always using uh, either the top, one of the top three agents in that area to sell. Because I would much rather, at these price points, leverage off their um, network um, and bring bring people in, and that's how we were able to pre-sell these two to three months prior to even being completed.
1: Okay, so they are sold. They're not closed, but they're sold in that's three it. months before they're completed. I love that. They're so,
0: they're not. I'm sorry. They're not sold. They're under they're under contract until we get our CO. Yeah. So they're basically just waiting for us to get our CO, and it's it's a done.
1: Perfect. I like that we've talked about uh, leveraging other people's networks today, and you've also talked about leveraging other people's experience. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. And so for the listeners, if you didn't write it down, uh, I have five steps so far. you you got to find the deal that nobody else sees. You have to you know, get the zoning or the contingency taken care of, then you have to fund it. He uses a commercial bank and a private lender, And then on rehabbing, you're using a project manager, so you don't necessarily have to be there. And then when you sell it, you think it's extremely important. And I like that part where you use one of the top three agents in the area and leverage their network so that they have the right buyers. Thanks for going over that. Are you ready for the final five? Absolutely. Perfect. We'll get right into the final five, but we have a quick message from our sponsor. Creating a great first impression isn't just important, it's necessary. Your logo is an extension of your personal brand. Whether you're looking for a brand refresh or a full rebrand, Tannis at Immense Designs can create logos, business cards, you name it. I've been working with Tannis on creating our brand material, and I can't be happier. So contact Tanis at ImmenseDesigns.us and open your world to immense possibilities. Want daily interviews with real estate investors and none of the fluff? Go to bestevershow.com, where Joe Fairless interviews daily real estate investors and entrepreneurs about their best advice ever. Go to bestevershow.com. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What's the most
0: creative deal you've done? So very similar to what I said before, um, most creative deal is buying a three family and putting a contingency. If we get uh, approval for a fourth unit, then we'll give them an additional kicker. Um, of money and Perfect. just to, and just to go through that, did you want me to go a little bit more in detail? Yeah, on let's
1: that? please do yeah all
0: right, sure, so um this property there were a lot of other developers that were interested in it, so knew that we had a I had a stand out in my offer um, it's c- currently a three family with a um, carriage house on the back with the unit above the garage, which is not being used as livable space. Mm -hmm. Um, so my offer was basically $2 million, which was consistent with other offers. Um, but if I got approval to do a fourth unit, I would give them an additional $250,000 on top of that. Um, so that would give us the ability to still close, pay them the $2 million so they can go do, buy whatever they need to buy to, to move into. Um, and then once I get the approvals, I'll send them another wire of two hundred fifty thousand dollars.
1: I love it. I think that's I think that's genius. Very smart.
0: Thank you. One of the one of the best things with that deal, though, is um, at closing, they told us they told me to give them another sixteen thousand dollars for moving expenses, mm-hmm. and they would take that two hundred fifty thousand kicker off the plate. Okay. Pretty nice.
1: Nice. All right. <laughs> how so? On that deal, is it currently a four family?
0: Uh, so it's still going through rezoning. I closed on okay. that deal about a month ago.
1: Okay. Well, good for you. What's a book you recommend for the audience?
0: I really like that. I'm going to probably nobody's said this, I don't think, uh, but The Goal. So I actually have it here. Um, I just read this. This was recommended by another real estate investor. And it talks a lot about efficiencies and uh, creating a process that's most efficient as possible. Um, and I really like this book. It's a little bit different. I I enjoy reading things outside of the real estate investment industry because it makes my mind think a little bit differently. And it always goes back to how can I implement this in my, my business?
1: That's great. Will you tell me the author of the goal?
0: Yeah, let me see here. here if you can see it a little bit better.
1: Eli M. Don't worry, guys. This is in yeah. the show notes. <laughs> it is an odd name, but I have it in the show notes right now. So just scroll down and you'll be able to find that.
0: That's why, that's why I didn't say it. I had you say it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried, but I'm sure I failed. <laughs> where were you five years ago? And where will you be in five years?
0: Uh, five years ago, still grinding away at my full-time job. Well, managing rehabs and uh, construction projects. All well, my second was just born. Um, So that's what I was doing five years ago and barely had any time on my hands. Um, Awesome. Five years from now, probably still doing, I really love what I'm doing. Uh, So just getting into larger developments for not only condo conversion, but now for rentals. Um, So I really want to build my rental portfolio now. Um, Working on my, I should have also said, I have a um, direct mail company for real estate investors. So building that out and really making it of, a a full-service marketing company for real estate investors and very likely uh, probably launching another business. I'm not sure what it is now, but uh, once I feel comfortable with how a company is running, I really enjoy kind of getting my teeth into something something new, um, even if it's on the same lines of what I'm already doing.
1: Okay. Let's pause for a moment because you mentioned something now that we talked about in the pre-interview, and that was how you're finding all your deals is Mm -hmm. by direct mail marketing. You're obviously an expert at it, and you're about to help other people do that as well. So can you give us a couple quick tips on direct mail?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the, the couple critical aspects of direct mail is starting with a really good list. And not just your absentee or equity owners like a lot of other people use, but really getting down and, you know, driving for dollars, looking for zoning plays. uh, There's a lot of additional things that you can do. Um, I like to stack my leads on top of each other and mail to people that are in multiple lead lists um, and really focus on those people because they have a higher um, motivation level if there is a lot of issues going on.
1: What does that mean? Does that mean that you look at a few different lists that make sense and then you find out which of your people are on multiple lists?
0: Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, So once you're starting with a good uh, list, um, sending really nice, uh, unique mail pieces. A lot of people are doing direct mail nowadays and especially, um, but a lot of them are doing the same exact thing. Um, So I always send very unique mail pieces to make sure that my mail gets, um, gets um, I found from the mail and not kind of mixed in with everything else. Yeah. Um, so I would say those are the two, two critical ones. Follow up is absolutely 100% critical. Um, both direct mail and by phone, if you're already talk- communicating with them um, and consistency in the direct mail.
1: Perfect. Uh, We've got some really good information here. And let me ask you. So, I basically have five things that I got from you. I'm one second. Let me type. Okay. And they are start with a good list, stack the leads on top of each other, have a unique mail piece that stands out from everybody else, the fortunes in the follow up, follow up, follow up. Most people aren 't doing that, and then consistently continuing to send the mail. Yes, when we look at the unique mail pieces, do you have one or two hacks that you can share with the audience how you 're standing out?
0: Yeah, um, so a couple of them is really uh, the first impression is what they 're going to see is the envelope or how you 're sending the mailer, um, so we use really funky designs on the envelopes, uh, we do unique things like just trifolding a you know, a nice parchment piece of paper and putting a nice thank you label on the back that's not even in an envelope. Uh, so we do a lot of things like that. So first impression, it really stands out before they even have to open the mail piece.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks for going through that. And we are, so how do you give back?
0: Uh, I give back in a couple different ways. Um, I started a blog when I started my real estate investing kind of career. Um, so I learned a lot from other people and reading other people's blogs. So I wanted to give back immediately by starting my own blog so people could follow what I'm doing. Uh, I provide pictures, I provide finances, every single thing, I don't hold anything back. Um, So not only the blog, but quarterly networking events. So I hold quarterly networking events just to network with other people in the industry. Love talking to new people that are just interested, getting started in real estate investing, see how I can help out and give back that way.
1: Talk about your events. How many people are usually attending these?
0: Anywhere from 30 to 50 people. And
1: um, is there a cost to be there?
0: No cost, no cost.
1: And is it, are you advertising to just local investors?
0: Yes. So the only, the only method of um, advertising is just if they get on my email list. I don't put it out to meet up or anything like that, which I probably should. But my, my event is specifically focused to be a smaller group that's yeah. very collaborative. Um, so we do a lot of different things, uh, a Q&A segment, which people really enjoy, um, where anybody can ask any question they have about real estate and everybody as a group will help answer that question. Um, and then all of the Q&A I always put on my blog so they can always refer back to it.
1: That's great. So the Q&A on the blog, is is that written or are you recording it? That's written. Okay, yep. great. And uh, you mentioned your blog. How do people find your blog or get a hold of you if they want to?
0: Sure. My blog is thebostoninvestor.com. And if they, anybody want to, wants to get a hold of me, the easiest way is just to shoot me an email. And that they can email me at justin at openlettermarketing.com.
1: Awesome. That was a lot of information. And we got a ton of great takeaways from you today. Thank you for your time. Really, really appreciate you being on the show. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box.
0: Thank you so much. This was great.
1: Thank you. If you got value from today's episode, I want to invite you to come to Denver to meet me. I have a great group of investors here in Denver that would love to meet you. I'm serious. You should really schedule the trip. Want to hear what Joe Fairless said about my group? Adam Adams has one of the most active meetup groups in the world. I've personally been to one of his meetups, and Adam packed that house with over 80 investors at lunch and another 60 on the waiting list. Find out the exact six things he did to create one of the top meetups on the planet by texting the word meetup to 555-888. Text meetup to 555-888.